This talk was given by Shyla Catherine. For more information and a schedule of her events, visit the Insight Meditation South Bay website at www.imsb.org. For information about online programs, visit the Bodhi Courses website at www.bodhicourses.org. Bodhi is spelled B-O-D-H-I. So the title of the talk is simply Loving Kindness. And there are two, what are described as being two wings of, the, of a bird, and one needs two wings to fly. And you can't just have fly with one wing. And one wing is considered wisdom, and the other wing is considered compassion or loving kindness in the Buddhist practice. To have a balanced practice, to have a powerful practice, to have an effective practice. We need the balance of both wings of the bird, both wisdom practices and the loving heart compassion practices. These heartful meditations are included in what are the list that's called the four Brahma Viharas or divine abidings. And they include loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. They bring a power of kindness and connection that transforms our way of relating to all beings and all perceptions, all aspects of life. We have a tremendous capacity to direct our minds. We can choose to incline our attention towards what is caring and kind. The opening verse of the Dhammapada says, Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by non-hatred does hatred cease. This is the eternal law. Metta is the Pali term for loving kindness. It's a clear intention. It's an attitude of mind. It's the intention of non-hatred, of eliminating ill will, from our consciousness. And it is a state that brings tremendous joy and delight, rapture and ease of mind. It brings us into a heart-centered experience with everything and everyone. And it weakens the tendencies of mind that separate and divide us, especially those associated with ill will, the tendencies of blame, the, the tendencies of over-criticism or aversion. Metta is usually translated with the term loving-kindness. It's derived from the Pali term mitta, which is friendship, or mitra from Sanskrit. I'm not sure that loving-kindness as an English term really embodies the fullness and the depth that the term metta really embodies. So you'll find in Dharma groups we often just say metta, not only because it's short, it's easy, and we get used to it, but the term metta really has fuller implications. Loving-kindness is a little awkward in our language. This term metta describes a deep friendship with life, an attitude of non-contention with all things. It might be called loving friendliness, but that's also awkward in English. 
Imagine what it would be like to live your life without contention, to experience each day and each moment without demanding it to be anything different than it is, to care for the well-beings of others, the well-being of others as fully as you care for the well-being of yourself, to trust that your goodwill extends to all beings to trust that your speech, your actions, and your thoughts have no ill will at all. It's an extraordinary intention. It's an extraordinary mental state. It allows us to receive every experience, everything we see, hear, smell, taste, touch, and think, free from ill will and with the mind imbued with kindness. This includes receiving the painful experiences of life as well as the joyful ones with an attitude of non-contention, non-struggle, and kindness. The Buddha said that the world may quarrel with me, but I do not quarrel with the world. This is the attitude of metta. It's the attitude of non-contention. We cultivate loving-kindness with a gentle invitation to soften our hearts and connect with life. Very often people complain or, or describe that the heart feels closed. It feels difficult to open. We feel just a little bit alienated or contracted. And sometimes we wish that that can soften, that we can just be more authentic, more present, more alive, more connected with those people that we love and those people that we don't know. This wish to open the heart can be a deep motivation for practice. And in the depths of metta, we can sense that this connection can grow, that ill will can dissolve, and that we have more and more capacity to simply be friends with ourselves, friends with our friends, and friends with all of life. This contraction that we might sometimes feel of me and mine and what I want the stories of who did what to me and why it wasn't fair and the grasping that we feel sometimes around wanting this and not wanting that can create a kind of armor around our hearts and metta melts that away. Metta creates a field of gladness within. It's a way of taking responsibility for cultivating happiness. Shantideva, a great Indian um, practitioner, said, the only way to make yourself happy is to practice love and compassion. This is the root of happiness. This doesn't mean that loving kindness is going to be easy because friendship, real, authentic friendship, is not always pleasant and it's not always easy. Friendship sometimes tests us because it implies being there, being present and caring, even when things are very, very difficult. Metta has 
what are called near enemies and far enemies. What I want to describe, not only what metta is, but also what metta is not. The far enemy, metta's opposite, is ill will. And this is the practice that brings to light. Uh, In this practice, we will see with the light of metta any moment of mind that is not filled with kindness. And it will purify the heart of those states of aversion and contraction and ill will. Sometimes the ill will feels stronger. In most of the metta classes I've taught, at some point or other somebody will say that I think this practice is making me more averse or more angry. But actually it doesn't. What happens is we start to see the ill will more clearly. We have less tolerance for the seeds of hatred within our own consciousness. And so they shine. They, they become obvious to us. They become obvi- obvious because they're no longer compatible with what we are committed to and what we are cultivating. Ill will can only strengthen when it is unseen. Whether we're shining the light of mindfulness on it or we are bringing the heart of loving kindness to it, it will weaken. It only develops when it is not seen. Traditionally, metta is recommended as an antidote, an antidote to anger, to ill will, and it's one of the recommended practices for anyone who just has a disposition towards aversion. Some people have dispositions towards greedy states, wanting that kind of movement, and other people have dispositions toward not wanting. It's kind of like some people walk into a room and see everything that they like, and other people walk into that same room and see everything that's wrong with it. It's just we have certain dispositions. And those people that just can't help it, but they see everything that's just not quite right, are, since the time of the Buddha, instructed, practice loving kindness. Because it will affect these dispositions. It will start to wear away this deep-rooted tendency towards aversion or ill will. And it's a specific antidote to fear and to anger. Metta is an intention. It is an attitude. It is not a feeling. This statement sometimes surprises people because often we want that feeling of loving kindness, that feeling of friendship. But if we look to the feeling tone, the feeling life, for confirmation of whether or not loving-kindness is present, then we will miss the strength of loving-kindness, the real motivation of that purity of consciousness that pervades moments that are pleasant and moments that are unpleasant. It's hard to say that we feel good when we are, say, facing illness or facing a very challenging, difficult situation. But we can have intent, uh, the intention of loving-kindness through those, those situations, even when they are difficult and the feeling is unpleasant, because the intention is pure, the intention of kindness.
Metta is more stable than any feeling can be. Feelings change. Something's pleasant, something's unpleasant. Metta is a strong and pervasive quality. It's a deep intention that pervades painful moments as well as the pleasant. It's critical to distinguish loving kindness from a feeling that is passionate or sentimental because passion involves attachment and sentimental is just a little too sweet. Metta is strong enough to bear the pain that comes in life. The near enemy of metta, it's called the near enemy because it looks like metta, but it really isn't. That's attachment. Metta is not an attachment or a passionate reaction. It is a receptivity to experience that may be powerful, but it is not mushy. It doesn't have that kind of saccharine quality to it because it has this root of strength and stability that was willing to embrace anything that occurs in life without separating and without separating from these deep and simple wishes for kindness. Metta is a commitment that we make in our hearts, but it doesn't demand any particular result. It doesn't demand that other people be different than they are. It is simply good wishes freely offered. There's a poem I love very much from Emmanuel's book. It says, love requires no practice, love is. One cannot practice isness. One can, however, practice the decision to love. The path to love is found by experiencing what it is like without love, just as the path to light is to be aware of darkness. You make the supreme choice. Love is not mastered. It is allowed. Some of you attended the Metta course that I offered about a year or so ago, which was a study course. We spent a weekend looking at the discourses of the Buddha in in which he taught loving-kindness to consider the various contexts and purposes that this practice was taught in. There were times when he taught it as a basis for concentration and focus of mind. He taught it as a practice of happiness. He taught it as an antidote to fear, as a way of living in concord with our community, as a way of meeting abuse and gladdening the mind. He taught it as a way of understanding the heart. The Buddha did not teach metta as a way of making us feel good. It's a practice that is integrated with the wisdom and insight practices and responds to complete and fill out the whole path of awakening. We shouldn't underestimate the power of a content and glad mind. In a mind that has metta, gladness arises. In a mind that is glad, rapture is born. 
When there is rapture, tranquility comes. Tranquility brings pleasure, and pleasure brings concentration. And a concentration, concentrated mind continues to support happiness and insight practices. Each aspect fuels each other, supports each other, and integrates this development of wisdom, compassion, and concentration. Developing loving kindness is a simple and direct thing that we can all do to create a little bit more ease and joy in our lives. It's a way to develop kindness that concentrates and calms the mind and then becomes a support for other concentration practices and other insight practices. It also is a wonderful supporting practice for prayer, for contemplation. Many teachers suggest that prior to doing any retreat practice, one begins with loving-kindness practice. It is also a form of jhana practice, concentration practice. The book that I wrote, Focused and Fearless, um, those of you that are new to the group, it's on the back table, develops concentration and jhana practice with the breath as the object. But you can also develop concentration and jhana practice with loving kindness as the object, right through to the states of deep absorption called jhana. The current book that I'm working on and writing includes the instructions for the jhana practice in that how to develop metta, loving-kindness, to such depths that the mind absorbs in loving-kindness. This state brings the mind to an expansive quality, completely boundless. The texts call it immeasurable. It's developed as the immeasurable deliverance of mind. Most of us, though, practice loving-kindness in little ways throughout the day. When I was studying in a monastery in Thailand, this monastery was an active monastery during certain parts of the years. It was way into the forest, quite deep in the jungle, but it was near a road. And um, on the holidays, busloads of people would come from Bangkok to spend the Buddhist holidays in the monastery. And when you have lots of people, you have lots of work. Lots of work preparing for their arrival and lots of work cleaning up after their departure. And so there were times when it was just a very busy, active time, cooking, cleaning, preparing, listening to talks, this and that, and just interacting with people. There were other times when we could go off and practice in solitude. I spent a number of months in a cave in that, in that monastery, very, very much in solitude. But the commitment in this monastery, the request was that everybody practiced loving kindness. And I was instructed to not get out of my mosquito net without doing loving kindness practice in the morning. You sleep under a little umbrella with a mosquito net, you know, on the, 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 the floor of the jungle or in a, in a bamboo kuti or in the floor of the cave or wherever you're sleeping. But, it, but whether it was a period of busy, active, um, interactive time or whether it was a period of deep retreat, silent time, every day began with loving kindness. This is a commitment that we can easily make in our daily life. 
don't crawl out of your bed without first a few thoughts of loving kindness. It doesn't take long. Let loving kindness be the first thoughts of each day and fill your mind with kindness, even if it's just running through those phrases once before you set foot on the floor of your, of your bedroom. Doing this very simply every day will completely transform the quality of your mind during the day. Loving kindness is often developed in these little moments, times when we are just standing in line at the store and we're willing to let go of our frustration of not being immediately served and just generating loving kindness for everyone in front of us. We might be driving along the freeway and instead of wandering off into thoughts of past and future or thoughts that you don't even know what you're thinking, direct your mind to develop, to use that time to develop kindness. Every car that passes, may you be safe, may you be happy, may you be free from pain, may you be well. Loving-kindness practice invites us to shift our habitual relationships, even the small ones. In this um, monastery in Thailand, it was really in the jungle, and we would get a, and we had one meal a day. And so we'd have, I'd fill my little coconut bowl. I had a little coconut bowl. Fill my little coconut bowl with the rice and curries and the, 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 the food that was offered for the day. And I'd go off down to, to the river to, um, to eat my meal. And as I was eating there, you know, it was jungle, so there are a lot of little critters. But little critters are actually a little bigger in the jungle, I found. So, um, <laughs> so what we consider to be an ant to mean something small isn't necessarily the ants that they have. They had big ants, really big ants, big enough that they had their own, they appeared to have their own personality their own sort of um, real-like presence. And these particular ants did, uh, that didn't like all follow in lines, like our ants where you see like a highway coming into your kitchen. No, these ants were individuals and they had these long antennas with, that, that they would sniff around. I assumed they were sniffing because they always um, could, they would wiggle their little um, antennas around. I don't know if they actually were sniffing, but anyway, they would wiggle their little antennas around. and they'd be, be able to figure out exactly where my coconut bowl was, which was usually on my lap. You know, and they'd crawl up my little leg and then come onto the bowl and then they'd come into the lip and they would help themselves. And then they would go back down. And, you know, I wasn't going to hurt them, but I really didn't want them in my bowl. <laughs> and so I discovered that really they didn't even want to be in my bowl. All they wanted, and they only took, each one could carry one grain of rice. And so as one was approaching me and making, like figuring out, okay, this is, this, they've just found it and they were now about to come on me, I'd just take one grain of rice and with loving kindness I would just offer them the grain of rice. And they would very gently reach out their little, their little, um, Feelers, okay, their little feelers, they would pick up, and then they would pick up their, um, their little grain of rice, and then they would carry it off. And then, since they don't happen in really dense rows there, but then another one would come a moment later, you know, half a dozen grains of rice, 
a lot of loving kindness. And it really helped shift what was originally like this irritation. I tried to find places that I could eat without the bugs, but they don't exist in the jungle. <laughs> There's really no place to eat without somebody finding my bowl. And so it gave me the opportunity to realize that this was just an opportunity to share. And could I welcome this opportunity to give, to share, and to do that with a heart of loving kindness and to wish for their well-being? This simple act took the conflict out of the experience. It took the problem out. And it opened me to another relationship with this little form of life. Now, it's true that sometimes human relationships are a little more complicated and not very many people are satisfied with a single grain of rice. <laughs> but we start where we are. And when we find ourselves in conflict, we may consider, is there a way that we can change our attitude rather than demand that the person be different than they are? We really can't change other people, but sometimes we invest an energy into a relationship that is subtly sustaining the conflict, either through aversion, through not liking the person, through jealousy, or through fear. Can we influence our own heart's response to conflict and extract that reaction of fear? Conflict is simply a challenge to us. It's a challenge to bring more loving kindness into our lives. There are many people that we share our day with. There are many birds that we see. There are many insects that fly by or crawl by. There are many animals. How do we interact with all of the forms of life that we encounter each and every day? Sometimes people feel alienated, they feel separated and alone. But there is never a day that we are alone. We are always in interaction. It's just that sometimes we keep that armored heart between ourselves and life. If we some cultivate practices that soften that distance, that open a little bit more, we might find that actually it is an incredible world a world that we open to and that we bring love into. When the Buddha first taught loving-kindness in the discourses, it said that he first taught it to a group of monks who had gone into a forest to practice for the rains retreat. And in this forest, there were tree spirits. And the tree spirits didn't really like having the monks around because, you know, then they had to tiptoe around while they were meditating and they didn't, just didn't like them in their space. You know, they had just kind of come in here to meditate and it was like their place. And so they weren't so pleased with it. So they were trying to scare the monks away. And so they were doing what tree spirits do. They were making the branches creak. They were going boo and making eerie sounds and kind of trying to, to scare them away. And the monks were quite scared, so they, went, they left and they went back to the Buddha and they said, please, please, send us to a different forest. And the Buddha said, no. Go back to that very same forest, but practice loving kindness. And so these monks went back. They followed their orders. <laughs> and they practiced loving kindness. 
And as they developed the kindness and as the heart opened with loving kindness and they filled the forest and the whole area with thoughts of kindness, the tree spirits started to like having them around. And they started to like having them around so much that they started to serve them and bring them water from the river so that they didn't have to walk down to the river all the time to get their water and started to sweep the, the, the paths so that they didn't have to um, walk on crunchy leaves. You know, So instead of going boo and scaring them, they would blow the leaves away. And they just started to help the monks. And so the teaching of loving kindness has traditionally been taught to overcome fear. The fear of tree spirits and scary noises, the fear of tigers for monks that were practicing in the forests, the fear of being alone, the fear of pain, the fear of illness, the fear of death, the fear of loss, of being hurt. We may not be afraid of tree spirits and tigers, but we still have pain in our lives that we sometimes fear. And metta helps us open to that truth. Chogam Trumpa Rinpoche said, Real fearlessness is the product of tenderness. It comes from letting the world tickle your heart, your raw and beautiful heart. You are willing to open up without resistance or shyness and face the world. You are willing to share your heart with others. Let's have a moment or two of silence, please. May all beings with whom we are inseparably interconnected live with loving kindness and joy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.